morning, Life Church. Good morning to all of you who are joining us online for church this morning. Happy Sunday to you. I hope you're doing well. Uh, we're continuing our series that we've called One Story, working our way from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. And we're starting a whole new era in the life of Israel because we're entering into the time of the kings. Up until now, for a while, we've been in the time of the judges, which went on really for centuries. But the people of Israel looked at the nations surrounding them, and they all had kings. And now Israel wants a king. Why is that? Because they thought it would be cool to have a king to lead them into their battles. Now here's how it plays out in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when the people cry out to the prophet Samuel. It says They say, give us a king to lead us. And then God responds here in verse 7. It says, it's not you, meaning you, Samuel. It's not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, God says. And God warns them about how the king will mistreat them and live high on the hog from their money. He'll take their sons and their daughters and he'll make them servants. He'll take the best of their crops and their flocks and give them to his posse and all of his favorite people. And in essence, God's saying, that's what you want? And they're saying, we want a king. God says, okay, you got it. So we're gonna look at the very first king of Israel and see how this whole king deal works out for them. First Samuel chapter nine, verse one. It says, there was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish. So the writer just wants us to know that this man, Kish, was a man of prominence in the community, of good standing in the community. Now look what it says in verse, starting number, in verse two there. So Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost, and Kish said to his son, Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. So they look in village after village after village. Now verse five, when they reached the district of Zuf, Paul, uh, Saul said to the servant who was with him, come, let's go back or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, look in this town, there's a man of God. He is highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he'll tell us which way to take. So let's stop there for a minute. Now. Saul just thinks he's going out on a donkey hunt here. And what's God gonna do? It's gonna make him king. It's gonna make Saul king. You just never know what God is up to. Saul looks for the donkeys in all kinds of places and he can't find them. And Saul finally says, let's go back home. But the servant says, no, let's go ask the prophet Samuel. If he's a really good prophet, he can probably tell us where the, where the donkeys are. So meanwhile, back at the ranch with the prophet Samuel, God is at work. Look at verse 15. The day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, the prophet. He says, about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. Okay, now put yourself in Saul's place for just a moment. Imagine what it'd be like to be Saul in this story. You're just out looking for donkeys. That's all that you're up to. And the servant says, well, let's go ask the prophet Samuel. So you go to Samuel and all you're hoping he'll do is to help you find the donkeys. But Samuel takes, in, takes you into this great hall and there's a banquet going on inside. And then he serves you as his honored guest. And the next thing you know, the prophet Samuel is pouring a flask of oil over your head and saying, I'm anointing you as king of Israel. What do you do when God interrupts your life and assigns you a task you never dreamed about? What do you do when you're just looking for a donkey and God says, I have a job for you that has never even entered your mind? 
How do you respond? Well, in a sense, the whole story that we're looking at here is one man's response to something like this. Now, Samuel, the prophet, wants to reassure Saul because Saul is going to need a lot of reassurance in the days to come. So he gives him three signs in chapter 10. The first sign is you're going to find the donkeys. The second sign is some men are going to bring you some food. And, the, and when that happens, uh, that will be a confirmation of my word to you. And then the third sign is in chapter 10, verse 5. He says, you'll go to Gibeah of God where there's a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you'll meet a procession of prophets coming. Goes on to say, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. That's a remarkable phrase when you really think about it. You're gonna be changed into a different person. So he's saying once these signs are all fulfilled, Samuel says to Saul here, do whatever your hand finds to do because the Lord God is with you. He's with you. Unbelievable task. Unbelievable promise, unbelievable interruption into a very ordinary life. Now, Saul's response to all this miraculous stuff is pretty ambiguous. In verse 14, it says, Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, he said. But when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel, the prophet. Saul's uncle said, whoa, tell me what Samuel said to you. Samuel's very well known. Saul replied, he assured us that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. <laughs> That's odd. Let me just ask this question of only the women that are watching today. You ever ask a man, how'd your day go? And he leaves out something important? <laughs> I think Saul is setting a new record here. I think Saul at least might say something like, oh yeah, by the way, he poured oil over my head and said that I was going to be king of Israel. So I got that going for me, which is nice. <laughs> but nope, nothing about that. Doesn't say anything about it. Now Saul is really going to struggle in trusting God for this task that God assigns him. Now another indication of what looks like a trust challenge for Saul is found in uh, chapter 10, verse 20. This is the inaugural ceremony. Saul's already been chosen king. That's already settled. But this is kind of the public inauguration. And this is kind of comical when you think, when you think about it. Verse 20. Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes. This is a ceremony thing here. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken, or chosen it means. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. Imagine there's a presidential inauguration where the new president just can't be found. He's hiding in a bathroom or something like that. This is not a picture of someone that is just brimming with confidence. So they're saying, anybody seen Saul, the new king? And people are looking everywhere. They're looking all over the place. Finally, God has to speak up and tell them. Go over there and look in the baggage. He's still looking for donkeys or something. So Saul becomes king. And at the outset, it all seems to go pretty well. But then trouble starts. At this point in time, Israel is at war with the Philistines. In chapter 13, Israel's in a pretty bad situation. Verse 5, it says, The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets and among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Bad situation. 
Now the Philistines had by far the arms race advantage here. They had the technological edge. In verse 19, it says, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philippines, uh, the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So they disallowed them iron technology. So the Philistines controlled the ironworks there. So the Israel had to go to the Philistines just to get their farming tools sharpened. So verse 22, so on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Okay, so there's two swords, two spears in the whole army of the Israelites. And they're going up against the Philistines now. 3,000 chariots, just soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. The only hope Israel has is to hope and to trust in God. They're not going to win otherwise, and everybody knows this. Samuel now was crystal clear with Saul about God's instructions. Samuel had said, listen carefully, Saul. I want you to go to Gilgal and wait there for seven days. I will come then and offer a sacrifice and I'll instruct you on what God wants you to do. Saul, your job is to wait. You got it? Yep, got it. What's your job, Saul? Wait. How long? Seven days. Okay, we're set. So the seventh day comes. Samuel has not yet come. Saul thinks maybe he's not coming at all. Now things are getting a little rocky. Morale is starting to wither a little bit. And um, Saul had one job to do. God told him to do one thing, and that was wait, to wait. And he won't do it. And so Saul decides to do the prophet's job as well as his own, and he does a whole sacrifice ceremony. Now, before we get too judgmental with Saul here, Anybody here ever get impatient? I mean, honestly, ever get impatient? Ever get tired of waiting up on God's timing for your life and then do something stupid? We all probably have. Now, Saul is anxious like so many of us get, but instead of bringing his anxiety before the Lord, he allows his fear and anxiety to drive him to disobedience. And then Samuel the prophet comes and says, Saul, what have you done? What have you done? Here's his second mistake. Instead of acknowledging what he did and repenting and just being honest, Saul says, well, my men were deserting me and the Philistines were coming and I realized, and he says this interesting phrase in verse 11. He says, when I saw the men scattering and you didn't come at the set times. In other words, he's saying, it's kind of your fault. Kind of your fault. He says, I thought now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. Now the phrase that Saul uses there literally means, I have not put God in a gentle mood. That's the literal Hebrew phrase that he uses. That's his picture of God. Somebody that he's got to manipulate or get into a gentle mood. So God will do what Saul, got, what Saul wants God to do for him. But listen, because God is good, not Saul, but because God is good, he still comes through miraculously in this situation and they find victory. Now, a little later on, chapter 15, Saul charts a course for his life that he'll never really be able to escape. This is maybe the most classic example in all of Scripture, not just about obedient, disobedience, because that's all throughout the Bible. But this is uh, an example of what might be called spiritual evasiveness. Spiritual evasiveness. This is a person who tries to convince other people that they're open to God, submitted to God, and really want to do what he wants. But the reality is, they're really not. They're really not submitted. It's disobedience 
plus a refusal to acknowledge truth. So once again, Saul is given very, very clear instructions from God through the prophet Samuel. And this battle they're about to, to embark upon is uh, an act of judgment upon the Amalekites. They had been involved in tremendous violence, tremendous wickedness against Israel, and they're to be eliminated completely, along with all their possessions. No plunder, no one is to profit from this battle. So God gives the Israelites victories, uh, a victory in this battle. But look in verse 9. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle and the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. Saul clearly, deliberately disobeys God. And the implication of the text is because he wanted to keep the good stuff. They saved the best for themselves and God sees this. And he says to Samuel, I am sorry I made Saul king. And at the end of verse 11, so Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. You ever done that? Cry out to the Lord like that? Prophet Samuel does, just cries out to the Lord all night long. And now Samuel goes to meet with Saul. And Saul knows that he's done something wrong when Samuel arrives. So how's he going to respond here? You ever see a kid who knows that he's done something wrong, but he hopes to get away with it by acting like the picture of innocence? In verse 13, this is classic. Saul says, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel the prophet looks at disobedient, manipulative King Saul. And he says, Really, Saul? I was born at night, but not last night. He might have said that. What he actually says is in verse 14, he says, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? And then Saul tries to blame his soldiers for it. And finally, Saul just says, stop, stop. But Saul won't stop. He says, well, we, we kept the sheep and the good stuff like that so we could sacrifice it to the Lord. Yeah, that's what we were doing. We we're going to sacrifice it to the Lord. And so Samuel the prophet speaks these great words, some of the greatest words ever uttered by a human being, not just in the Old Testament, by, by anyone. Verse 22. He says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Listen to these words. To obey is better than sacrifice. Say those words with me. To obey is better than sacrifice. God wants an obedient heart most of all. Most of all. Now Saul here comes close to repenting. Almost does. Then it says in 24, Verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. But look carefully at this next phrase. I was afraid of the people. I was afraid of the people. He admits the obvious, but even here he doesn't get to the core. I mean, he was afraid of the people, but he also wanted plunder for himself. Even when he's this far down, he's completely exposed. He's still trying to spin things so he doesn't look quite as dark as he actually is. That's amazing. Human beings do this kind of stuff all the time. They'll own up to whatever they get forced to own up to, but they won't fully come into the light. And Saul here just won't fully come into the light. And Samuel tells him, he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you as king. And this is a final decision. And this is a crossroads moment here. I mean, Saul has a choice to make. Saul could accept God's word with humility and grace. 
He could accept God's decision and comply completely, completely from this point forward, whatever that means, whatever it includes. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he grabs onto Samuel's robe and he won't let go, as if somehow he could, by some stretch of the imagination, and holding onto that robe, he could hold on to all the power and all the glory and the crown that he does not want to let go of. And he rips the robe of Samuel. And Samuel says, this is a picture of what's happened. The Lord has torn the kingdom from you. The Lord has torn the kingdom from you. Friends, we've got to understand the irony of Saul's life. God calls him to be king, and he hides amongst the baggage. God calls him to let go of the crown, and he won't let go. Saul just never gives God a fully submitted heart. At the end of chapter 15, it's a sad verse, verse 35. The Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. He never gave God a submitted heart. Insecurity, greed, worry, all those things were able to keep him from giving his heart fully to God. Let's not let that be a description of us. I mean, God forbid. Well, we're going to pick up the story next week from this point on. And uh, next week we get to meet together publicly on Sunday night, <clears throat> May 2nd, 6 p.m., right here at the Orlando Museum of, Heart, of Art, which is right behind me. We'll meet at 6 p.m. And we're going to pick up with one of the most interesting characters in the entire Bible, young David, who becomes King David. I mean, a man who failed and blew it seven ways from Sunday, but he never, ever let go of his love for God. I, it's an amazing man, an amazing story, an amazing life, and I cannot wait to get into it. So next week, we're all together publicly, Orlando Museum of Art, 6 p.m. Hope to see you there. Let's pray about all this, can we? Uh, Father, we're so grateful for your word, which lights our path and illuminates our lives. And God, we ask that you continue to uh, pour out your light and wisdom through your word to our lives, that we might access it, that we might apply it, that we might live lives that produce fruit that glorify you. Just like your word says, 30 and 60 and 100 fold even, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Uh, let me leave you with this. Go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, the God who came still comes, and the God who spoke still speaks. God bless you. See you soon.